Welcome to The Blind Side. News and information from a blindness perspective. Here's Jonathan Mosen. A pleasure to be back with you after what has been a very busy time for Bonnie and me over the last few days. We've been attending the Blind Citizens Australia Convention in Melbourne, catching up with friends old and new. Got a number of great interview leads from that convention, so we'll be hearing a few Australian interviewees on the podcast over the coming months as a result of attending that convention. I also had an opportunity before the convention started to sit down and have an extended chat with Dr. Fred Schroeder. He is, of course, the current president of the World Blind Union, but he's made an enormous contribution to the blind community, and I'll be talking to him in just a moment about his history, what has shaped his worldview on blindness, and some of the work that he's doing as president of the World Blind Union. Before we hear that interview, though, I wanted to follow up on something that I mentioned a couple of weeks ago pertaining to the actions rotor in iOS 11. This is something that has been causing a lot of frustration for people who rely on their email for productivity and found themselves inadvertently deleting messages. Currently, because the actions rotor works inconsistently even within email, but in iOS 11.1, it was slated to work more consistently within the email app itself but it was still inconsistent largely with the way that iOS in general works. I'm delighted to say that Apple has heard the feedback and I got copied on a lot of email, a lot of email that people sent to Apple. And thank you for doing so because it is a really important issue. The emails that I received that I was copied on were really respectful. They were clearly worded. They indicated why it was such an issue for us and why it was essential that Apple hear that feedback and revert, and they appear to have done that. For two betas now, the iOS 11.1 Actions Rotor works as it used to do in iOS 10 and earlier, and so when iOS 11.1 is released officially, you should find a much more pleasurable and consistent email experience. And you can take a lot of credit for that. It's great to know that when we can make a case that Apple will listen, They will respond as they should because we are paying customers and it's a great outcome. So thanks to everybody who made that happen. Pat yourself on the back for that. On that subject, when I was at the Blind Citizens Australia Convention, I gave an address on making the most of emerging technologies. And I talked about how important it is that we recognize the fact that companies like Apple and Google and Amazon These big corporates are now assistive technology companies. They are developing screen readers and other technologies that we depend on every day for our jobs or for our information access. And that it's critical that we hold those companies to the same degree of accountability that we would any other assistive technology company. I point out in this address that consumer guarantee laws in terms of a product being fit for purpose are just as applicable to blind people as they are to anyone else. And so if software is released that has a serious defect that would not be considered acceptable for sighted people to put up with, it's not acceptable for us either, and that we need to affirm our worth, they do have to comply, these companies, with Section 508 of the Rehabilitation Act. Arguably, there's also the uh, Section 255 of the Telecommunications Act and the ADA, of course. And that's all just U.S. law that come into play. Many other jurisdictions have pretty strong consumer guarantees legislation that says that a product must remain fit for purpose. So there's a lot in the address that I gave to the Blind Citizens Australia Convention. And you can read that address on my blog 
the Mosin Consulting blog at mosin.org slash blog. That's M-O-S-E-N dot org slash blog. The piece is called Making the Most of Emerging Technologies, and I hope that you'll give it a read. I think it's a really important subject given how increasingly dependent we are on these mainstream companies. But congratulations to everybody who brought this change about in iOS 11.1. And people are asking, when will you see that? I suspect that we're going to be looking at a release of iOS 11.1 at about the time that the iPhone 10 is slated for release. Now, the iPhone 10 pre-orders begin on the 27th of October. I understand that there may be quite a shortage of supply because the face ID technology, the infrared camera and all of the things that are making that technology work, uh, that's apparently quite tricky and they're having some difficulty manufacturing in uh, a large enough quantity. So we can expect supply to be pretty limited to begin with. But nonetheless, no matter what phone you have, if it's running iOS 11, I suspect we will have iOS 11.1 quite soon. And for those who depend on email, it won't be a moment too soon. It's time to hear from this week's featured guest on The Blind Side. It could be easier to introduce this week's guest by talking about the things he hasn't done rather than all the things that he has. Dr. Fred Schroeder is the president of the World Blind Union. He served as the first vice president of the National Federation of the Blind. He's been a professor an orientation and mobility instructor, Rehabilitation Services Administration Commissioner under the Clinton administration, head of the New Mexico Commission for the Blind, heavily involved in the International Council on English Braille and the creation of the Unified English Braille Code, and so much more. Dr. Schroeder and I sat down for a chat while we were both at the Blind Citizens Australia Convention. I began by asking him about his childhood, the arrival of blindness, and how his worldview of blindness was shaped. I had normal sight until I was seven years old and became blind from a very severe allergic reaction. I lost most of my sight and the rest I lost gradually over a nine-year period. So I've been totally blind since I was 16. At the time I was integrated into public school, but there were no support services. And what that meant, Jonathan, was that I was excused from all, all reading, all writing, all maths, I was excused from doing anything that I couldn't see well enough to do, which, of course, had a terrible impact on my education. I did not know Braille. I didn't learn Braille until I became totally blind at 16. And I tell people I taught myself Braille, but the truth is I taught myself to read. I I had never been taught to read. What were they doing with you all that time if if you weren't being taught any literacy skills or or essentially you weren't being educated at all? uh, Were you just turning up? I was just turning up. As long as I sat in class and listened, then that was was good enough. And you asked about it shaping my attitudes about blindness. It had a profound impact on my attitudes. I assumed that my passive role in in the world was the inevitable consequence of blindness, that this is just what it is to be a blind person, that you can't do this, cannot do that, cannot do the other. And so I did not have aspirations. I had no sense that I might be able to live a productive life. And how did that change for you? Is this where the NFB comes into your life? 
That's exactly right. I went to an adult training center when uh, when I graduated high school, and that is where I learned the skills, the O&M skills, the Braille. I, well, I mean, I, as I say, I taught myself to read Braille, but my reading technique was horrible and my speed was terrible. Uh, so I went to a training center, but I met a young fellow who was about my age, who was involved in the National Federation of the Blind, and he got me involved. And I think this is a common experience in the sense that I really, I had no, I had nothing against the NFB, but I had no sense that it might have something to offer me. I went to my first convention, not because I found the idea interesting. I went because my good friend told me to go. Which year was that? That would have been 1974. And we were meeting in Hollywood, California. Mm. So that was towards the end of the first Jernigan presidency then? That's correct. Mm. And you saw a whole bunch of blind people who really had a kind of a, what, a poise, an independence, a quality of life, something that caused you to seek that too. That's... That is exactly right. I went into the convention hall and I was, I, I, again, I was there with no expectations. I didn't know what it would be, but here were blind people talking about serious policy issues and not just bemoaning what was happening to us as a class of people, but planning strategy of what to do to counter some of the problems that were causing blind people to lose opportunities. And I was, I was stunned. As I became more involved in the NFB, what really shaped my perspective on blindness was the combination of role models, people who were living active, integrated, productive lives, and, and also, though, the people whose lives truly had been devastated not so much by their blindness, but by the lack of opportunity. So in other words, I met blind lawyers, blind teachers, a blind insurance executive, but I also met blind people in their 50s and 60s who had never worked at all, not because they were lazy or incapable, but because they literally had never been able to get the opportunity to work. That shaped my understanding that what we were dealing with, oh, of course, blindness has a physical dimension. But the real devastation of people's lives mostly is socially constructed. I think of young people listening to this interview who might have gone to an NFB convention or perhaps the conference or convention of a consumer organization in their country, and they see these leaders at the podium. And at a certain young age, it's hard to imagine that maybe one day that could be you. And you have been up at that NFB podium an awful lot over the years. What does it take? How did you get from attending your first convention, sitting in the aisles, absorbing all the stuff, to being a respected leader in the most successful, arguably, consumer organization of the blind that has ever existed? It started with blind people believing in me. And believing in me, Jonathan, more than I believed in myself. I, as I say, I really had no conception of what the future could be for a blind person. My assumption was that my future, it would range between very bleak and less bleak. And to see blind people living really 
Well, let me give you an example. A, a blind man I met, Muzzy Marcelino, he was an insurance executive in San Francisco. But he also, as a hobby, raised prize-winning roses. Mm. And he, for years, was a judge in the big rose contest in San Francisco each year. And the reason that stood out in my mind was it wasn't just that here was a blind person who had been taught to do a job and would go off and toil eight hours and come home. But this was a, a rounded person. And that was just so different than my conception of blindness at that time. So people like, like Muzzy and many others, uh, they encouraged me. They kept telling me, you can do the things you want to do. And a good example was I started college and my braille skills were still very poor. And I was using a slate and stylus for notes, but I couldn't keep up. And so I was telling one of my friends, I said, I can't write quickly enough to take notes. So what I'm doing is recording the lectures. And he said, that's, that's a terrible way to take notes. Uh, it's very inefficient. And he was right. Uh, I had my poorest grades that first semester. He said, what you want to do is get lightweight, regular typing paper, not braille paper. He said, you want to take your stylus out on the sidewalk and sharpen it. And in other words, you could say what he was doing was giving me techniques, and he was. But what he was really doing is saying, quit giving up. You need to be able to take notes. So don't just assume that you can't. Do something about it. That was the beginning for me. And that is symbolic of a truism that we know from the ages, really, that blind people are in the best position to solve their own problems. And you commented before we were recording about the interview that we did with Deja Powell not so long ago, and I know you've been an O&M yourself in your time, and yet there is this view among a lot of blind people I talk to, and it's extraordinary to me, but, but there is a, a view that... Somehow blind people are not always in the best position to determine the techniques or solutions that are best for other blind people. Well, and I certainly understand that. Uh, and it's a particularly logical if you're newly blind, you feel very vulnerable. And so the idea that another blind person is going to teach you can seem just beyond comprehension. But I taught orientation and mobility. I taught full-time for two years and there are now many, many blind people. Well, when, relatively many. There's probably 80 or 100 blind people in the U.S. who are teaching O&M. And there, it's, it's fine. I mean, it's working. The proof is in the, in the outcome, I suppose. And frankly, there are some natural advantages to be instructed by a blind person. And I'll give you a simple example. You and I experience the world differently than a sighted person. And one big part of that is acoustics. And so if I'm working with a blind student, I'm hearing the world the way that person is hearing the world. Now, of course, a sighted O&M is hearing it that way too, but they don't use their hearing in the same way that we do. Um, so I'm not saying 
cited people shouldn't be O&Ms. That's not my point. My, my point is that blind people can cue other blind people into things or understand, for example, if somebody's confused or the problem, it, it's not a step away. It's I'm experiencing it the same way. So I, I immediately see what it is that's confused my student and can help draw his or her attention to that problem. But mostly, mostly O&M is the application of some very basic skills and then building a catalog of experiences. So you just keep ex expanding and expanding the application of those skills into more and more complex situations. So uh, it's not miraculous. It's not dangerous. It's, it's not unreasonable. I think, Jonathan, one of the things that, that I think about in the 1950s in the United States, women were not allowed to be O&M instructors. And the reason was, or I should say the logic that was put forward was that the profession evolved from working with newly blind veterans. And people would say, well, if you've got a six foot two, 240 pound man who's newly blind and a little five foot tall, 100 pound woman working with him on a flight of stairs and he starts to fall, she won't be able to catch him. In other words, it was the safety argument applied to women. So should women not be O&Ms? Uh, of course not. Now, what about that though? Could a hundred pound woman catch a six foot two, 240 pound man who's falling? No. So why then should we allow women to teach O&M? Well, for a variety of reasons. One is if you're five foot tall and a hundred pounds, guess what? You know you're five foot tall and a hundred pounds. And if you're working with somebody who's big and you have reason to think that person might be unstable and might fall, you're going to do something about it. In other words, it's judgment that really is at the heart of safety. A, a little five foot tall woman isn't going to say, well, I guess I'll just stand here and wring my hands and hope he doesn't fall. You would do something about it. What might you do? Well, you might not start that person on a full flight of stairs if you were concerned about him, or you might get somebody to help you. And I would point out that if you're a six foot tall man, but you've got a bad back, you're probably not going to be able to catch them either. So the idea that that blind people somehow would would create a less safe environment, you know, I, just like a, a small woman knows she's small, a blind person, I know I'm blind. And if I'm in a situation where I think sight might be important, uh, and frankly, I don't think of a situation where it came up, but, but were it to come up for some, you know, very particular reason, well, you know what, I'd get, I'd deal with it, you know, I'd get help. So it's not really uh, a, a problem for blind people to teach mobility, but I, I fully understand why particularly a newly blind person might have apprehension. And in terms of that first NFB convention and indeed the ONM we've been talking about, there's this extraordinary evolution in the NFB where you have the strong philosophical underpinnings of the organization that Jacobus Tembrook put in place with his scholarly legal mind. And then 
you had the continuing of the development of that philosophy, but also in the hands of somebody who could really operationalize that philosophy in an extraordinary way in the form of Kenneth Jernigan, who really turned that philosophy into a working system in Iowa. It is sad to me, I guess, that nearly 20 years on after his death, there are a lot of people who have attended NFB conventions who, who never were there to hear him speak or, or listen to uh, some of his philosophies. What was he like? What, what kind of man was oh, Kenneth Jernigan? He was one of those truly larger-than-life people. And it's, it's hard to know where to start. I first met Dr. Jernigan uh, through recordings of banquet speeches that were given to me. And when I first was given a big pile of these banquet speeches, imagine, you know, I was what, 17, 18 years old, and somebody says, wouldn't you like to sit down and listen to banquet speeches? You think, <laughs> well, no, uh, frankly, I wouldn't. But I found the speeches were mesmerizing. I, he was one of those people who had the ability to stand up in front of 2,000 people, but you were absolutely sure he was talking to you. And he gave such great perspective we, we talk about it in terms of NFB philosophy, but really sorting out what is the, the objective aspect of blindness and its impact on a person's life and, and what is social attitudes, misconceptions about blindness. And really helped me understand that much of the limitation that blind people experience is self-imposed. In other words, when I went blind, I didn't suddenly miraculously have insight into blindness or, or said another way. I was a sighted person who couldn't see anymore. I, I had all of the assumptions about blindness that sighted people generally had. And so when people talk about adjustment to blindness, in effect, what that meant for me was I thought, well, it just means resigning myself to a life of dependency. Well, it's horrible. And Dr. Jernigan said to us, that's horrible. You don't have to be dependent. You don't have to be isolated. You don't have to be limited to some sort of rudimentary, repetitive work. You can aspire to do things, and what will make it possible is mostly imagination. And this was not just hyperbole. The first licensed blind electrician that I ever heard of was a man in Iowa who was one of Dr. Jernigan's students, totally blind man, uh, Curtis Willoughby. He lives in Colorado now. He's long retired. And what was at the heart of this was rather than saying, oh, I can't be an electrician, or even the next step saying, well, maybe I could do some of it, but I couldn't this, I couldn't that, I couldn't the other. Instead, Curtis started with the presumption of here's the job. Here's what needs to be done. Now, how will I do it? And so many people through Dr. Jernigan's program, and that was quite insightful the way you described Dr. Jernigan as, in effect, breathing life into Dr. Tenbrook's philosophy, operationalizing it in people's real lives. And the results were amazing. Uh, he was a charismatic man. He was a caring man. He was a strong man. And one of the things, Jonathan, I never asked him if this was deliberate or an instinct on his part, but he would 
he would always put you to work. He'd invite you over for dinner and you would arrive and he'd say, Fred, I, we're going to eat outside. I want you to come help me set up tables. He'd put you to work. Frankly, not because he really needed your labor, but for me that stood out because I didn't grow up being needed as a, as a low vision and eventually totally blind person. When there was a family function, nobody said, Fred, we need you. In fact, they said, why don't you kind of, they said it more politely, but in effect, why don't you stay out of the way? Yeah, lots of blind people are used to feeling like spare parts, aren't they, in, around family and, you know, and, and family think they're doing you a favor. Absolutely. Yeah. Now, he wasn't without his detractors, though. And some would say, look, he, well, he played no small part in splitting the blind consumer movement apart and potentially uh, taking it back some some years because of those divisions. Well, you know, this happened roughly in 1960. So who knows? Uh, who knows whether different decisions might have had different outcomes. I've read a lot of the history of that time period and Oh, I, you know, whether, whether all the decisions on all sides, I mean, I just, I really don't know. What I do know is that he inspired me and he's inspired many other people. And I don't think I put him on some sort of pedestal or turn him into a deity. He was a man, uh, but he was a wonderful man, a man who cared about blind people. I remember him saying something that stayed with me for all of my life. He said, as long as one blind person is subject to discrimination, we are all subject to discrimination. And that to me is a very profound principle. That's saying in effect, we, we have a shared community and a shared obligation. That it's not just good enough for me to do well in life. That, that I have an obligation to give back to others as others gave to me. Uh, so I don't, you know, am I going to, I, if somebody says, I don't think he should have this or should have that, I, who knows? But he was profoundly important in my life. The Federation has some very articulate, capable people in its midst. It's extraordinary in that regard. And yet the presidency very seldom rotates. And I can't even remember, actually, the last time the presidency was even contested. It strikes me as odd that in this community of such outspoken, articulate, forthright people that goes on. Is it particularly healthy, do you think? Oh, yes, I do think it's healthy. Now, I, I think the world evolves. So that has been the pattern of the Federation, but it's not a rule. Uh, and as the world changes and customs change, who knows, you know, whether that will always be the pattern. Dr. Maurer, who stepped down in 2014, he had served as president for 28 years and uh, is actually our longest serving president. So now we have Mark Riccobono. But part, one of the values within the Federation is to have stability, that that you need a leader who 
uh, well, how do I say it? We're, we're not an organization where the new president every year or two years is inaugurated and says, here, here are my priorities for the next year, two years, and taking the organization off in a new direction. It's, it's, a, it's a concept built around a sustained effort. Um, Mark Riccobono, could we do, you know, if something were to happen to him, do we have other leaders who could lead the organization? Absolutely. And would they be accepted and supported as strongly as he is? Absolutely. Does that mean, therefore, we should rotate it? Our custom is just to say, no, he's doing a really good job. Let's build on that consistency. It's not, it doesn't subordinate anybody else. I, uh, for many years, was first vice president of the Federation, mm. and it was a profound honor to be first vice president. I saw my job as helping Dr. Maurer be maximally successful. Yeah, I mean, you were kind of like the Prince Charles of the NFB for a long time there, because I remember actually uh, President Maher getting up at a convention once and essentially saying, if I get run over by a bus tomorrow, I would like Dr. Tro to take to take over for me. So it's kind of, it kind of is like being Prince Charles, isn't it? You're sort of sitting there thinking, well, you know, one day I might become president of the NFB. Well, you know, certainly it was something that you didn't you didn't want that circumstance to ever become uh, needed. But at the same time, uh, it's a very it's flattering, but it's also a very serious responsibility. Our members we put tremendous trust in our leaders and in their judgment, in their ability, and in their personal integrity. And so it's a serious responsibility to take on. And I was deeply honored to be able to be in the leadership for so many years. You know, I was going to talk with you about this in a WBU context, but it's kind of come up now, and I'd I'd be interested in exploring this with you. Traditionally, there is a quite clear demarcation point between the things that consumer organizations do and the things that provider organizations do. And the NFB at some point took a different approach, and they said, well, who better than blind people to actually provide these services and so that's been a bit of a departure does that potentially muddy the waters though when you have the watchers that the, the monitors also doing the service provision because if if something goes wrong with a service that the nfb is providing who can people go to well i take your point uh, but if you withdraw the Federation's programs from the mix, then who can people go to? I, I think we got into, for example, the adult rehabilitation area because it was just so difficult for blind people to really get good quality training. And when I say good quality training, there were many, many places around the U.S. where you could get very competent instruction in O&M or Braille or whatever the skill area. But what we felt was the critical dimension was using the skills in support of high expectations. I could get into great detail on this, but uh, we felt it was a need. And so over time, we established three training centers. And the students who graduated from those centers and continue to graduate from those centers, obviously people are different and some people will achieve great things and others less so. But students 
I think, pretty uniformly would sit here and say, Jonathan, my life was transformed. And as long as that continues to happen, then people will go. But it's not a, how do I say this? It's not an infrastructure in the sense that, uh, you know, if the need isn't there, if we're not attracting the students, well, then we ought to, it ought to go away. Hmm. Uh, There's not like a saying to people, you're obliged to go for training because it supports the Federation. It's just the opposite. I would say to a young blind person, you should go for training because it will transform your life. And if you don't believe me, let me introduce you to two or three people in your age demographic with similar interests to you and let them talk to you about what it's done in their lives. And you can decide for yourself. So, Uh, you know, I, I don't really, I, you know, I take your point and I understand it theoretically, but in practice, at least today, it's not something that I think is imperiling the Federation's freedom to be independent and very strong on the advocacy front. Yes, I only the sense, I suppose, that a lot of organizations, a lot of countries look to the Federation, look to the United States for leadership. I mean, it was the US that gave us the ADA, Section 508 of the Rehab Act. Mm -hmm. And so there's a lot of emulation that goes on there. It it does strike me that with the exception of the NFB, which seems to just be in a class all of its own, people aren't meters anymore, aren't get-togetherers as much as they used to be. And so the consumer movement around the world appears to me to be in some sort of decline, particularly in Western countries. And I think that that's being facilitated by traditional blindness provider agencies who no longer respect the role that consumer organizations have to play, the fact that blind people need to get together and that the decisions that they make have weight because blind people have chosen to confer, to discuss and ultimately to vote. Now, the provider organizations are saying, yeah, but there's only like a tiny percentage of our clientele who go to these things, and why should we be held captive to such a vociferous minority view? But that undermines the traditional role that we all have seen consumer organizations playing. Now, it it seems that the NFB could potentially be undermining it from the other end, that no matter which way you look at it, there is a, a pretty scary blurring going on between what providers do and what what consumer organizations do. Oh, no. I mean, we, okay, so we have our three training centers, and these are operated in, in independent, in our, their own states. Okay, so it's not, it's not something that we operate nationally. It's not a significant part of our funding. It's, it's, as I say, it's genuinely a service uh, because people couldn't get that need met elsewhere. Other services that we provide are, are intended to really be supportive of our philosophy. I'll give you an example. We've, we've become very aggressive over the last half dozen years or so in trying to promote Braille literacy among blind children. This has been a chronic problem in the U.S. And so we've started what we call our Bell Academies. And those Bell Academies, they're early intervention, uh, little summer camps for young blind children. 
And it's a mixture of recreation, but also Braille instruction. Now, in a little summer camp, are you going to teach a blind child Braille? Well, certainly not to the point that they're now literate. But we do it because we want to make it, we, we want children to see Braille as fun. We want parents to be exposed to blind role models. The staff in these programs are by and large blind people. We want parents to understand the importance of early Braille literacy for their children. We, we want to connect them to us. And is it a program? Sure. But you know what? We don't make any money. We, we costs us a lot of money. We have to go out and fundraise to do it. So in that sense, when you look at the agencies, they have an infrastructure to maintain. Uh, and, and ours, not not real I, you know it, it's 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 different i i ran an agency for the blind i've run a public school program i've run a federal agency and to me the the distinction is is a stark stark distinction the federation i doubt if one percent of its money comes from services that are sold do you agree, though, that uh, around the world, in Western countries anyway, consumer organizations appear to be struggling a little bit in the current environment? I, yes, I do. And I don't know that I have the perspective to say <clears throat> that it's worse than it was or better than it was. But, it, but, it, but yes, uh, the consumer movement is always struggling. And it's struggling because of lack of resources. It's struggling for many reasons. Some of them just, you need an inspirational leader. In other words, you need, you need that Dr. Jernigan to say, I mean, it's, it's not hard to know what the problems are as a blind person, but you need somebody to say, you know what? We can do something about it. You and I together, we could do something about it and mobilize people. So for example, oh, a dozen or 15 years ago in Thailand, there was a move toward getting rid of individuals selling lottery tickets and moving toward vending dispensing of uh, lottery tickets. And the Thai Association of the Blind, they staged a hunger strike uh, to bring attention to the problem because blind people there, many were employed selling lottery tickets. Now, that's an example of collective action. In other words, I as an individual, if my livelihood is being threatened, can I do something about it? Maybe, maybe not. But the Thai Association of the Blind today remains a very strong consumer organization, and it's strong because people have become accustomed to achieving success by working together. So it's difficult. There are infrastructure issues, funding issues, um, the need for leaders. One of the things we're working on in the World Blind Union is some leadership development. And we especially see the need for leadership development among blind women who are very often marginalized as are women generally. The interesting thing about that Thai example is I, I believe that one of its um, very articulate members became a senator in Thailand, didn't he? Absolutely. Yeah. So, so it's important for blind people to be involved in these key institutions. I think in, in legislation and the media in particular, which is so influential in terms of setting 
the, the public opinion. You know, Jonathan, while this is interesting, I hadn't thought of it in these terms, but maybe one of the distinctions, again, I ran a service agency. When you run an agency, people come and you say, here, here in effect, here is what I can offer you. Whereas in the Federation, when we bring blind people together, we don't bring them in and say, Jonathan, here's what I'm going to give you. We bring people in and we say, Jonathan, you and I have this common need transportation, access to education, access to employment. And you know what? I can't fix it. I can't fix it for you. But you and I together, we potentially can can resolve these problems. So it's a very different mindset that I think transcends that kind of that objective or mechanical aspect of do you lose a certain freedom by becoming a, a provider well, again, I suppose if you get dependent on that institutional structure, then it would be a problem. But it's again, it's a very small part of what we do. See, the World Blind Union is an interesting amalgam, really, of providers and consumer organizations. Mm-hmm. I wonder how you feel about that, because I know there is some disquiet about the fact that sometimes people get together at WBU events and you get the CEOs of the blindness agencies they get together and they have these discussions among themselves and they go back with positions. They've sort of inspired one another. And those positions, without any kind of mandate, any debate or discussion within the blind community itself, then get espoused by the agency as this is what blind people need. Now, I don't think that's happening in the United States because you've got such a strong consumer movement there. But there is this blurring, I think, between where does the mandate from a provider organization start and stop? And and that must be quite a tricky balance, especially for you with your consumer credentials to manage. When, when I di- directed a service agency in New Mexico, uh, you know, of course, I'm a blind person. But growing up in the Federation, uh, I would have... You know, my view is, first of all, that agencies should not speak for blind people. Blind people need to speak for themselves. And a blind person running a service agency has no business speaking for blind people. I mean, I'm a blind person. I have that life experience. But I'm not, but when I was running that agency, nobody elected me. Nobody, I was, I was accountable to the government. Um, and my view is that you need a partnership, that the agency ought to help blind people achieve full and equal opportunity and as a partner. But it's blind people themselves who need to chart the course. And that's your point about uh, how these things evolve internationally. It, it's... The WBU, we, we are actually the result of the merger of an international organization that was made up of service providers and an international organization made up of consumer organizations. So in 1984, the World Council for the Welfare of the Blind and the International Federation of the Blind merged. And it's a tricky balance, partly because of resources. You know, obviously your service agencies, they've got 
resources that most consumer organizations don't. And, and so we live in an imperfect world, but we try to stay grounded in our fundamental beliefs. Those fundamental beliefs meaning that people need access to education, to rehabilitation training, to employment, and most important, that blind people need to speak for themselves. Before I became involved in um, the the AT, the assistive technology part of the blindness sector, I spent some time um, being involved at a regional level in WBU. And it's a humbling experience because, I mean, there's no reason why we shouldn't be advocating for improvement of our lot. But when you get involved in WBU, you really appreciate just what a massive divide there is around the world in terms of the opportunities available to blind people. Yeah. Yeah. uh, You know, the disparity is enormous. And yet it has a common root. Uh, UNESCO published a report a couple of years ago that said in the developing world, 98% of children with disabilities are not in school. They're not educated. And yet at its, and so that's not an issue that in the United States we face or in New Zealand or Australia. But the root behind it is common. In other words, why do poor countries not educate children with disabilities? Well, it's based on a presumption that there's no point, that, that they will be dependent all of their lives. And if you have limited resources, why would you spend money to educate a child when you need to spend money to educate the non-disabled child who will care for the disabled child? So even in countries with the most developed systems and the greatest resources, you have staggering unemployment rate among blind adults. And yet, as you well know, it's not hard to prepare a blind person to work. But it is very hard to get society to believe that a blind person can function at a competitive level. It's very difficult. So it's it's a common root and it plays out differently. And in the developing world, oh, you look at children and even if you could get them to go to school, the access to materials and the access to teachers who have any sort of knowledge of how to educate, all these problems, they can they can become overwhelming and maybe it's because they are overwhelming. But you start. Uh, this is where the Marrakesh Treaty, uh, it won't solve all of the literacy problems, but it has the potential for children in the poorest countries to suddenly have access to lots and lots of educational materials. That together with the the Orbit Reader and and I don't mean the orbit by brand name, but this, the idea of a low-cost, refreshable Braille display. Now you couple that with the Marrakesh Treaty. Uh, and are those two things enough in and of themselves? No, you'll have countries where kids don't have access to power to re- recharge the reader or the reader breaks and there's no infrastructure. In other words, I'm not being simplistic about this, but the fact that it won't solve all the problems doesn't mean that we can't make huge progress in trying to expand opportunities. And part of that, again, I think really comes from saying, here is a problem, problem B, literacy, education, rehabilitation, employment. 
But the first barrier you have to overcome is the, the barrier of low expectations. The task is so mammoth for the WBU, and I guess the, the Marrakesh Treaty is a very good project to have taken on because everybody wins with that. I mean, there are, there are tangible advantages mm-hmm. for developed and developing countries um, with, with that. But how do you determine what your priorities are going to be when there is such a disparity of opportunity available? The WBU is is an organization made up of organizations. So our members are agencies for the blind and consumer organizations of the blind. And when you have an organization like the World Blind Union, you want it to be representative. And, And yet to do that means that you have to put in place some cumbersome procedures. So we develop for each four-year term a very detailed strategic plan, and we go through an exhaustive process of gathering input into that strategic plan so that to the greatest extent possible, we're reflecting what people see as the need. So in, in New Zealand, for example, Martine Abel Williamson, who is the uh, the treasurer of the World Blind Union, but she also chairs our Access to the Environment Committee. And when you, I mean, you think about that as an area, oh my word, it could absorb the lives of many just dealing with, with access issues. But Martine has done an outstanding job at organizing this around some kind of common theme areas, such as the emergence of these shared spaces and what's needed for access the the related issues that spill over into technology i i here in in australia i've seen these elevators where you put in what floor you're going to and then it tells you which elevator to go to or which lift to go to uh, i've only seen that ever once in the us but you know again we've got to make certain that these technologies are accessible and yet re- and remaining kind of nimble enough to address things that maybe come up unexpectedly. So so it's a combination, but um, we, we try very hard to draw input uh, so that the, the work in which we're engaged is relevant work in the lives of blind people. When you look back at your term, when it's over, presumably you're a very action-oriented kind of guy. So you'll want to be able to say, I guess, uh, by the end of my term, I would like to have made this difference in these key areas. Do you have those sorts of goals in mind that you can point to by the end of your term? Yes. Um, I'm going to say yes and no. How's that? You can tell I had background in uh, in <laughs> government. Um the no part of it, let me start with the no first. I, I think we, we could sit down over a cup of coffee and easily sketch out a list of significant challenges that blind people face. And, and a good list, you know, list of things that are truly significant. And then I could say, all right, Jonathan, you take items one through five and I'll take six through ten. Well, maybe one through five aren't a good match for you, for your interests, your resources, your experience. In other words, 
there's a degree to which work needs to be organized in ways that you, you, you to the greatest extent you can, you, you address the issues that are important, but, but those issues have to be addressed by people who have a passion for that work. So if Martine didn't have a passion for access issues, the mere fact that those issues are important and that we appoint somebody to be in charge of it, well, it's, the success is going to directly relate to her interest together with her knowledge, her experience, and so on. What I'm saying is the fact that something stands out in my mind as important, unless I am able to get others to think it's important, and to work with me on it, um, it won't ever happen. So some of it's dependent on the interests of others. I think there are some areas that we need to put immediate attention to. One is one that I've been leading for several years now, and that's around making sure that these quiet electric and hybrid electric cars emit an alert sound. That's that's a critical issue, and we could go into great detail on where we are with that. Uh, I think related is this whole issue of making sure that technology factors in accessibility at the front end. Home appliances are getting increasingly difficult for blind people to operate. Uh, my stove, I can, I can set the temperature, I can do the basics, so it works for me. My oven and my stove, I can operate. But I cannot operate all the features. I can't operate the, the self-cleaning function, because it's all menu-driven. Same with my microwave. I can put something in there and run it for two minutes or however long. But there are many features built into that microwave that are inaccessible. Um, with the thermostat in my home, you're now getting washers and dryers with touch screens and we just bought a new dishwasher and it was very difficult to find one that's accessible and again it's only partially accessible so we need to and and this is something that i think is is the kind of issue that you need a world presence to deal with so we have a technology committee and we've said to them this whole area of accessible home appliances we need to do something about well what is something well you bring people together who have knowledge and and they try to sort through the possibility for example maybe trying to get a standard where, where there's like a, a standard interface in other words don't say every microwave that's produced has to talk but that if home appliances had a common interface, then maybe through my iPhone, I could operate my appliances. Right. So options like HomeKit and Google's equivalent have a lot of potential there. Well, and that's where I was going to go next, Jonathan, is to say these kinds of common interfaces would help us, but then they also allow for exactly what you've described um, you know these smart homes where people are doing all sorts of things now and and so this idea of the what, what i'm saying is the idea of a common interface isn't oh let's do something kind for the blind 
that adds cost, but we need to do it because their lives are so tough. We should be doing something for them. It, it's, it's something that the technology as it evolves needs for, for all people to be able to run it well and in some sort of organized, coherent way. But the, but the idea of the accessibility, it needs to be factored in at the very earliest stages. And is the industry coming to the table in these discussions? Well, our work plan, uh, because of the process that we're going through, was, was not finalized until June. And so the work around this has begun. But again, going back to that first strategy, part of what our work plan is, is to try to draw in the right people to work on this. And we have a, a fellow who's heading that committee, Sachin Pavitron from the United States, who is the former chair of the U.S. Access Board. Um, so he's a man with great technical knowledge, but also very connected, if you will, into that whole world of accessibility. And uh, so he's, he's leading the effort on it. We're going to have an update next month at our officers meeting in Tokyo. And at that point, I'd have a better sense of, of the details of how far we've come. There are all sorts of diplomatic considerations with WBU. It's essentially the United Nations of the blind community. So there are, there are geopolitical factors at play. And I'm sure somebody with your diplomatic skills will be treading those waters with appropriate care. But I wonder how difficult it is for you being an American at the moment, being president of WBU, because the United States has still not ratified the UN Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities, and there's no Marrakesh Treaty ratification in the United States either. That must put you in a bit of a difficult position. Oh, in, in one way it does. Um, and, you know, it's, it, frankly, it's an embarrassment that we've not signed the CRPD. I'm cautiously optimistic that we'll get the Marrakesh Treaty ratified so, you know, clearly, clearly it is a disappointment or an embarrassment in that sense. But the advantages of the treaty, we've developed a lot of materials, training materials, resource materials, and so on, uh, to help countries be able to frame the argument with their governments on why they need to participate in the Marrakesh Treaty. It's something that is so needed um, we've got to get the U.S. to ratify it because the number of books that would flow into that distribution pipeline would be huge. But, um, yeah, I, you know, it's, it's a frustration. And, and really, Jonathan, the thing is it comes down to U.S. culture. Uh, the conservative uh, people in the United States historically have had a great suspicion of the United Nations that it's a step toward one world government and we'll lose our sovereignty. So it, it, it has very little to do with the merits of any of these treaty instruments. And unfortunately, we get caught up in that. How do you think services such as Kindle and iBooks and some of these public services that blind people can now so readily access changes the need for the Marrakesh Treaty? Oh, well, in or a, does it really? Does it change the need for it? <laughs> well, you know, long term, will you need a Marrakesh Treaty? I don't, I don't know. But, but a simple example is um, material that is produced. Okay, well, let, let's use recorded format for example. 
uh, if there's a book that's recorded here in Australia, uh, prior to the Marrakesh Treaty, any English-speaking country that wanted that book had to record it over again. And granted, a lot of the popular books that are being published today are also being published in audio format. Uh, and that's, that's a big, a big plus. Uh, but the, the need for, for the treaty, again, it's not that any one piece is the whole. It's just that. It's, it's a piece. Uh, so, Take, for example, the blind child living in a very poor developing country. Uh, something like a Kindle reader might be affordable in developed world, but less so. And I, I, I'm sure you more so than I, but you know, I have a Braille Note Touch and I have um, a laptop computer and I have a Victor Reader Stream and I probably have a half dozen other things that aren't coming to mind. That's just not not practical for the, to meet the needs of people in in particularly in developing countries so you know it's a piece of the puzzle uh, you know the quiet car issue is another example uh, 10 years from now it, it will be very different uh, I've seen demonstrations of technologies where cars can actually detect pedestrians uh, you know, not just in front of them, but on the sidewalks. So at some point, it would probably be very practical where the alert sound is turned off until the car knows there's a pedestrian around. Uh, you know, anyway, it, it goes on and on, and you just have to adapt as as the needs shift. Now, I'd love to be able to keep chewing the fat with you for a long time, but I know we've kind of dragged you into a room here, so I want to be considerate of that fact. But I do want to close by talking with you about Braille, which is a passion for us both. Uh, I actually first really spent time with you. It's, it's amazing to think it's nearly 25 years ago when we sat down and started talking at a conference in New Zealand about the unified English Braille code. Uh, can you give me a brief sort of state of, of Braille address? How, how are we doing in terms of the, the Braille code? I think this is a good example. The real starting point is not the code itself. The starting point is the need for blind people to be fully literate. And with that said, Braille needs to continue to evolve to meet the evolving literacy needs of blind people. So we worked on this Unified English Braille Code project and did the code that came out, is it the right solution, the best solution? Who in the world knows? But at its core, what we were, what we were faced with was a, a code that grew up in a different era where Braille was really a closed system for blind people and was highly context specific. A simple example is, I've said to people uh, prior to UEB, what is dots five, six, Y? Well, it could be I-T-Y at the end of a word. It could be letter sign, Y, telling you this is the word, the letter Y, not the word, the short form 
uh, you. It could be a subscript Y. The point being that it was very context dependent. And as blind people had a need to function more interactively uh, with sighted people and to be able to get materials that had not been especially organized for blind people, regular materials and be able to use uh, refreshable braille displays and so on, we, we needed to make some changes. So, you know, the U.S. was very resistant to UEB and I would say to people, I am not trying to force UEB on anybody. Is that that UN thing again? Do you think that kept the international thing coming to the fore? Or no, was it really it, the Nimeth thing that did it in for UEB in the States for a long time? Nimeth, but also I think because we have had such a Braille crisis in the U.S. for a long time, one of the arguments against teaching Braille in the U.S. was the idea that the code was too difficult. And so a lot of blind people, when you talked about UEB, in their minds they're saying, they're connecting it that we're saying it's too hard to learn Braille. And in, in effect, an attack on Braille. And, you know, so there were a lot of people who said, Braille works great for me, leave it alone. And as I say, you know, my view was, we will have a change in Braille when blind people collectively feel it needs to happen. And if we're not there yet, you know, I'm not trying to tell anybody how, how to live their lives. We tried to design uh, UEB in a way that um, not only allowed it to be less ambiguous, and there's still ambigu ambiguity, um, you know, it's like they used to say, a camel is a horse built by a committee. <laughs> You know, there are things about UEB that I think we didn't go far enough, but that's my opinion. You know, who knows? Maybe we went too far. I don't know. But, but again, the point being, what we were trying to do is say the code needs to work for blind people. Blind people should not be limited in their ability to function because of the code. The code needs to adapt to our needs. I was always a supporter of UEB personally, not just because it unified uh, the, the Braille code among disciplines, but also because I was seeing a lot of developing countries where they were having to learn multiple mathematical codes because they were gladly accepting maths textbooks from wherever they could get them. But there was no consistency about the way that those math texts were written. There might be uh, multiple maths codes they had to come to grips with. And so for me, it was about democratizing Braille and making it easier for students who had less opportunity than ours do to get a decent education. Yes, I, I, I mean, having sounded so wishy-washy a moment ago, um, I believe that we needed to make changes. Now, just to show you how, uh, I guess I have to confess since I started, personally, I thought we should look at an at uncontracted braille that would free up many symbols that could be used so that we had a code that was expandable uh, for example bullets and so on so so do away with contracted braille yeah gee that's a radical idea isn't it? well it, and nobody else much thought it was a good idea so you know it's 
remains like a lot of my good ideas. <laughs> uh, they're good in my head. But I thought, I mean, can you imagine how getting that through would have gone, <laughs> given given how much trouble well, it was getting what we've got? Well, again, you know, I, you know, it's my idea. And I'm not trying to foist it on anybody else. Right, but, right. but I thought, you know, this would free up a lot of symbols uh, that could be important in mass, and they could be important as literary conventions change and so on. Uh, you could simultaneously. Uh, some people call them dot six numbers you know i like the idea that what we think of as the ch sign would become the number one and the gh sign would become the number two okay, right. mm-hmm. so now you don't have all these problems of mixing letters and numbers you have symbols that are numbers and only numbers and symbols that are letters and only letters and there are people who say well this will make braille slower i'm not sure that that's the case um but i guess my point is it whether i'm right or wrong is irrelevant the point is we should keep challenging the code to support our needs and that's really where i come down that that we don't we don't ever want to be limited by the tools that we're using those tools need to support our aspirations and our interests and by the way one of the great things about technology is someday I'll be able to program, well, not program, but I'm sure someday I'll be able to select the display on my refreshable Braille device so that I see the Braille the way I want to see the Braille. And if you, you know, and if you care what the type font is, you can have that displayed. And if I could care less, I don't have to bother. It's been a pleasure to talk with you. And I have to say that, um, having seen you speak heard you speak in various forums over the years you just have this remarkable ability to make all blind people think that they can make a difference they can improve not only their own lot but the lot of blind people in general you have that ability to motivate people and it's a, it's an extraordinary skill but you've matched it with real contributions in so many endeavors we haven't even touched on RSA or, or too much on New Mexico and, and all those things that you've done. So I guess I just want to close by thanking you for the extraordinary contribution you've made and continue to make. Well, thank you, Jonathan. And I'm not saying this out of politeness, but you have given voice to blind people in a way that is very impactful and badly needed and, at least from me, deeply appreciated. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to The Blind Side, a production of Mosin Consulting. On the web at mosin.org.